by that bumper. Okay, all right, okay. Well, good morning, everyone. As many of us are not feeling well after a busy season in Christmas, um, we can tell mostly um, at this time of the year, that first Sunday in January, uh, people are usually homesick or taking care of children that are sick. But sick, excuse me. But 2020 is a new year, and uh, we're told to uh, wonder what is going to happen in 2020. Well, uh, I don't know if the Washington Nationals will win again. I'm really not sure. Um, you guys paying attention? I guess not. I mean, I came in this area, and you guys won. So, um, you know, I think that's exciting. I just don't know. They're trying. I mean, they're signing new players. And the great thing today that I found out this morning, I was looking on my phone, was that the New England Patriots are no longer in the playoffs. They're done. Woo! Boy, I now got your attention. Yeah. So how, how many of you are interested in Washington Nationals winning again this year? Uh, you got like six people. Okay. All right. And then three of them were kids. All right. Okay. I mean, like, anything to get me out of here, Pastor Bruno, get me out of this room. Okay. Hurry up. Get to Children's Church. All right. Now, with all that being said, I'm trying to keep myself awake here because I almost fainted in the first service. Now, the idea is that um, as we look into 2020, in all seriousness, as we look into 2020, we, want, we, we often hear in churches as they begin in January, they start with this vision series. And that's what we're doing. We're doing that because it's necessary for us as a church to move forward, to wonder where is God taking us. And a vision is given from God to the appointed leader and appointed leaders to be able to take this vision forward. Now, it's not our vision. It's not something we come up with and say, this is what I want. Can you imagine if five or six men are together trying to figure out what the vision is? Um, it doesn't work that way. A vision comes directly from God, and it requires lots of prayer and hearing from God what does he want his church to do next. And as we continue forward, we want to hear that, and we want to know what does that look like? How is that going to push us forward for his kingdom's sake? And vision is important because just like in churches, in any kind of business, personal or big business, usually you will see a vision statement. It's general. It's not specific. It covers an area from A to Z, but each entity needs a vision, and it needs a vision to carry it forward, because whenever any business or church or any type of entity is off track, you need that vision to get back into alignment, and that's key to anything that we can do even as a church. So as I think about 2020 as we move forward, one of the things we'll share today, and we'll be talking about it in the coming weeks, what does it mean? And it could be a personal vision in your own life. What are you looking to do this year? I mean, we know that 2020 or any kind of year that starts over, we usually do these New Year's resolutions. Well, that's a vision that lasts maybe about a week. But usually what happens is you have something, and what could that vision be even for you, and what is that vision for our church. So that's what we're talking about with this week in the coming weeks, a 2020 vision for Grace Church. I even entitled it this week and this sermon series, A Confident Vision, because a confident vision derives from God. As we as his people, we want to make sure that we have a confident vision. As we look at Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at his, his life specifically and what does that look like. But I want to stop for just a moment and talk about Henry Ford. I'm in his vision. Many of you know who Henry Ford is. You've studied that in history. 
He obviously was a man who had a vision to invest in the automobile industry in the late 1800s and, and early 1900s. In fact, at that time, it was a crazy notion to even consider it. Uh, farmers uh, were working hard, were investing in land. Land was a commodity that people often looked for. They looked to not only buy land, but to see a future for their family, a vision for moms and dads and children and grandchildren and generations to stay on that land and for farming to be able to uh, create um, good farming for goods to even possibly sell it to the United States to again just have this plethora of vision and mindset of, of, of just working towards a future and the industrial revolution starts and now business and commercial and the revolution of creating businesses and mass production. And Henry Ford had a vision for that, for the automobile. It wasn't just inventing or bringing forth the idea because the steam engine was beginning to come into effect. And he thought, what would it look like for people to get into a vehicle and travel on roads all around America? And the farmers saw this as a threat. In fact, uh, somebody after the, sec the first service 9 a.m. service said to me there was an article in 1899 in a newspaper that said that many farmers were concerned that if this thing would happen, this automobile industry would happen, it would, it would lessen the value of their horses moving forward. And so it would devalue their horses. And they were concerned because obviously we know that back in the 1800s, people would buy horses um, and be able to increase um, their stock and be able to increase business. So here, they wanted to come with this idea of innovation in the automobile industry. In fact, in an article from the Assembly Magazine, a writer wrote about Henry Ford. At the moment, however, he said, a leap into the unknown looks more like an act of a madman. So here was this guy who was considered a madman, this crazy notion to, to in, invent an, an automobile and an automobile industry. Because what he was thinking of was he's creating a system, a mass production, that would be an assembly line of pulleys and wheels and gravity. And he would be paying people $5 a day to work in this area where it would be constant reputation, steady pace, and precision in a steady, speedy process. And back then, that was crazy to even think about. Today, we understand that with the automobile industry and the billion-dollar business that it is, it, it's an easier job today. And people get paid a lot more. And you have automotive alignment equipment, robotic fixtures, and lightweight electric, yes, quotes, nut drivers, because they're putting the vehicles together in, in a very speedy process, producing vehicles. And you got to think about the vision of Ford where today you can get a phone and you can connect it to your, to your car and you can have meetings while you're driving. You can travel two, three hours to your job every day. Uh, I was traveling three or four hours back in June and May. and you, know, you can travel around and you can live practically in your vehicle. He didn't envision that. He didn't even know. He was just thinking about inventing for the sake of business, for leadership, for innovation, for mass production. But now hundreds... Years later, we find out that people can actually do more than just drive in a car and the music and all of that. But you got to think about 
with this whole process of vision. Vision can create tension. It can create it to where even, it says in an article here, I'm going to quote the article in two paragraphs. It says, Ford's vision had a several distinguishing characteristics that are important for those who wish to develop their own creative tension. Because where there's vision, there's change, and where there's change, there can be tension. First, the customer was in the driver's seat. So he envisioned the customer has the right. He's in the driver's seat. He or she's in the driver's seat. It is true that Ford said, let the customer have any color he wants as long as it's black. His vision wasn't perfect, but it surpassed everything else based on price, reliability, availability, and use. The second distinguishing characteristic of Ford's vision was that it was multi dimensional. Henry Ford looked at every aspect of his business to achieve his grand vision. Product, process, and people. Let me repeat that. Product, process, and people. His product vision was based on interchangeable parts that fit together every time and a product that that didn't break down as he used it. A product so cheap to build that everyone could afford it. And see, with creative tension... Most do believe it is necessary to carry out a vision. You have to have tension. Doesn't mean that you're creating tension, but it does mean that when one wants to carry out a vision properly, change will occur and change will create the tension. See, that's what it is with the church. When you have a vision, you have to carry it out. One casts it out, but one has to carry it out. It's not one person who carries it out. It's not a group of five or six men that carry it out. It's everybody coming together, working together to carry it out. And it's going to create tension because it's change. And vision means innovation, trying to reach a different people, trying to reach people who are far away from God so that we can use whatever necessary to draw them in. But it creates connection and network and getting involved. It creates people coming together and saying, I want to make a difference. And that's what we want to talk about. See, what what created Ford to have this vision was that he hung around with people that moved him in innovation, that challenged him to think beyond the box, to take risks. He hung around with men like Thomas Edison and Harvey Firestone. And they hung together in winter laboratories in Fort Myers, Florida, pushing themselves in their areas because they were engineers and investors and businessmen trying to move forward, trying to make America great. And I don't mean that as like a pun, but I'm saying that to try to bring forth a mass production of business and economy. Now, how did he do? He, he didn't do too bad. I mean, today, again, as, as I stated, the vehicles in front of us, it's just amazing how we need that industry to continue forward. All of us need a vehicle. All of us need to have work. All of us need vacation. All of us need to get to our families, even during holiday time. And his, his vision statement was quite clear. It says, people working together as a lean global enterprise to make people's lives better through automotive and mobility leadership. So it's important for us to understand that vision will carry us out. But he had a burden. And we're going to talk about Nehemiah and his burden. But there are four parts of a confident vision. And this is something I got from Andy Stanley's book, Visioneering. I didn't cite that there on the PowerPoint, forgive me, but it is. One is, you got to have a problem 
in order to carry out a vision. I know that sounds kind of strange, but many times we try to carry out a vision and try to cover up the problems. We try to avoid problems or we try to fix problems right away. But you got to have a problem because where there's a problem, a burden can follow. Secondly, with a problem, you have a solution because you need a solution when you have a problem. If you have a problem, you're always looking for a solution, maybe a quick solution to fix it, but we need a solution. So with every vision, there's a problem, there's a solution. Thirdly, the reason something must be done. The reason, what's the purpose behind it? It must be done. And then fourth, the reason something must be done now. So it's not something that we just say there's a problem, hopefully there's a solution, we have a reason, but it needs to be done now. It's not something that you're going to hope for because then it's really not vision. You're not encouraging someone to reach somewhere. So as you open up your books to Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to talk a little bit about that. A confident vision to rebuild begins with a burden heart for change. You need that heart for change. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 10, even, even to verse 11, we see the background. As we look at the book of Nehemiah, we see there's a, there's a quick history. And that history is, is quite clear. Because that history is one that would show forth a backdrop of the 70-year of captivity. And then there were three returns to Jerusalem. And we understand that in the, this is the third return of Nehemiah. Nehemiah um, is, under the, is under the reign of Artaxerxes. But Nehemiah is also a cupbearer. And as he is settled in, Nehemiah um, is a cupbearer to the king, which would be considered a modern-day butler. And he would bring wine or drink to the king, and he would test it before it was sent to the king. But again, even meals, he would have to do that. So can you imagine a job where you're a cupbearer, and your job was to make sure that the king would not be burdened? But the people of God were sinning, and they would sin often, and judgment would follow. One who would want to return to a mess. So here he was, you know, confronted with this idea of Jerusalem and New Jerusalem. And it would be, he would want to, to take on this impossible task. Most would run away from problems, look to comfort. But here he knew when he heard about Jerusalem being desolate and having a reproach, falling apart, he knew that he was 500 miles away. And there was a burden that was carried on him. Why? Why did, why did Nehemiah, after he heard this news, he would be burdened? It's because he loved the Jewish people. He loved God's covenant love, his loyal love. He loved his people. And he loved the fact that God would use his people to be a testimony to the Gentiles surrounding them. But the testimony was not faring really well. The Gentile nation saw Jerusalem. It was desolate. The wall was down. And where walls were built up into a city was to keep others out, especially Gentile nations. And so the wall that was created for military strength, the Gentile nations didn't see them as a threat anymore, so they didn't worry about Jerusalem, and they didn't care. But the people of Jerusalem just got accustomed to what was around them, so they didn't do anything about it either. In fact, they didn't get a message from God. But here's Nehemiah 500 miles away, and he's like, wait a minute, God, why are you telling me about this? Why is it that I'm hearing this message and my heart is becoming burdened? And see, some of us, we could respond by saying he couldn't say 
And some of us could, but he could have said this. Ah, I feel bad for those people. Hope somebody or something works out for them to restore that city of Jerusalem. I'm sure God will take care of it. See, that's not what he was thinking. In fact, he wasn't hoping someone else would take care of it. He started to realize God was working on his heart. But sometimes what we do is we say things like, you know, and we all do this. You know, no one's excluded here. We all say these things. I hope someone reaches out to my neighbor. I hope someone could talk with my coworker. I hope someone could speak some sense to him or her. I don't have time for it. I hope someone makes a difference in our community. I hope our church can do something about it. I hope that the pastoral leadership team comes up with a great ideas and with a great vision. See, a lot of us, we do that. But I ask the question, what burdens you? Does it involve another person? What burdens God? Why did he send his son? What should be the burden for the body of Christ? It did for Nehemiah. It was a burden. See, a burden costs time and effort and change. What did Nehemiah do when he heard the story? Did he try to make something happen? Or just did he just lean on God for an answer? A confident vision is not self-focused, but others-focused. And I just want to encourage you as we're looking at this passage, we've got to understand there's got to be a burden for change. And a burden and a confident vision to rebuild begins with not only a burdened heart for change, but a burdened heart that leans on God's foresight. That's important. That's why with Nehemiah, when you look at the first four verses, and we understand the background in the first two verses, but listen to his heart and his passion. It says in verse 3, it says, And then they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble or shame. It's a reproach. It's shameful to see that Jerusalem has come down to where there's no walls, there are no people, no worship. The people are desolate. And it burdened him. And it says, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard this, Nehemiah says, these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days as I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was moved and burdened with prayer. He had a passion. He saw this. And it's funny because 150 years earlier, Jeremiah stated this in Jeremiah 15, 5. It says, the Lord cried out, who in the world will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will grieve over you? Who will stop long enough to inquire about what you are doing? Nehemiah did. Nehemiah, 500 miles away, God begins to bring this message to him. He hears the message. He hears about Jerusalem, and now he's burdened. So burdened that he cries out in prayer. See, for us, what we're doing is we're setting up a venue for 21 days of prayer and fasting. In fact, we're giving you a week to meditate on it, to take the letter, to take the booklet, to pray over each day, to join together in prayer because we do believe in the power of prayer. Here at Grace Church, we're going to create that emphasis here and create environments and opportunities for people to pray. This is one opportunity. Please don't push this aside because what burdens you? Because if your neighbor, if it burdens you that they're not walking with Christ, what burdens you? If your co-worker is not walking with Jesus, what burdens you? 
if there's someone at work or at school or someone you're in contact with, what burdens you? You need to turn to prayer. This is your opportunity, 21 days of prayer and fasting. Will you give up a meal? Will you give up days of eating for the sake of reaching someone who's far away from God? See, that's a burden that we need to have. And see, that's what he did. He was, he was leaning on the foresight of God and saying, wait a minute, Lord, you're telling me I'm sitting here as a cupbearer. There's no way I'm going to get out of this job. There's a chance that if I even try to ask this king, he's going to kill me. Lord, what are you doing here? And he just places that seed of burden with a seed of vision. And now what happens is Nehemiah is moved to lean on God for direction. And he's praying, and he's praying, and he's fasting. He's willing to give everything up for the sake of rebuilding Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem represented God, his people, the covenant, and a testimony to a Gentile nation. So it's important for us to gather that. Also, a confident vision to rebuild begins with a burdened heart that leans on God's faithfulness. See, now when you're looking at verses 5 through 11... We see in verses 5 and 6 that he's talking about, oh God, oh Lord God of heaven, the great, awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he goes, and let his ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of your people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I, my father's house, have sinned. So you see, you have to understand that the concept is that he's crying out, he's, he's mentioning God, he's mentioning prayer, he's mentioning the point of confession of sin. Because for vision to happen, we've got to be in prayer. For vision to happen, we have to be passionate about the commandments of God, passionate about his loyal covenant, passionate that he wants to reach other people, passionate that he loves others besides ourselves, passionate of the fact that he wants to reach, but he wants to use you and he wants to use me. And we want to be a vessel being used of God. But then he goes on in verses 7 and 8. This just hits me. Because this is where faithfulness comes. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Meaning, we have failed you, God. We have spit on you. We have pushed you aside. We have said, Lord, I don't want to hang out with you. Lord, I'm not interested in you. There are times we just push God away. But God in his love and his faithfulness continues to chase after us. And then Nehemiah says, Lord, we remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. See, the word remember in the Hebrew means to call to mind. Nehemiah was reminding God what he did with Moses and a vision that he had for his people. In fact, the word remind is about 12 times in this book because Nehemiah is reminding the people of coming back to the place where they needed to, which is loyalty to God because he was loyal to them, faithful to God because he was faithful to them, loving his people, loving Jerusalem, loving the city, loving what it represents, loving people who are different than the Jews to reach out and be a witness and a testimony to them. That's what he was calling for him to do. And he's saying, remember, Lord, don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your covenant, Lord. Build this city. Send me, Lord, send me. I'll rebuild this Jerusalem. That's what he was doing. And he was reminding him of that. He was saying, repent, because where we carry a vision, we've got to be reminded of God's love for us. And we have to be able to repent. That's what he's calling him to do. It might sound like he's just saying a bunch of words here, but these are some strong, meaningful words in this passage 
to carry out vision. Because when we're going through tough times and adversity hits us, we need to lean on God. I know in the times when I was struggling, I, I wanted to give up. I had enough with this. I had enough with Christianity. I had enough with God. I had enough with, I had to keep giving, giving to God. And what was he going to give me back? God keep reminding me. He kept reminding me, hang on. His faithfulness. Hang on. Because what we see is how he has worked in the past, he will continue to work in our present and the future. I, I was often told by my mentor, hey, the way that God has worked in the times of the Old Testament, he will work also in your life still today. And I have enough of years under me at 30 years now in the Lord that I know that God has worked in certain ways. But here's one way I know that he works. He always works according to his word. And he always works according to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that leads us and guides us. He's going to remind us of the commandments of God. That he loves me no matter what. And even when I fail him, he still is chasing after me. And that doesn't make any sense because it's so contrary to the world. The world is, if you don't do something for the world, they can care less. They just kick you to the corner and spit on you. But God never does. God loves us and cares for us deeply. And that's a passion that we have to have. Moving forward, that's why he continues in sharing this passion. But in verse 11, he says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Meaning he knows he's got to go to the king to ask if he can go and rebuild this city. He knew that. He was sure of that. But he was praying too. And before he enters in, we're going to see that, he recognizes that he's just a cupbearer. He goes, now I was a cupbearer to the king, a servant. Why would God want to use me? But God's using him. And see, he had a burden. That's what carried him. And he knew that the burden started with God. Here's another thing. A confident vision to rebuild begins with a burdened heart for commitment. So it's not just for change. It's for commitment. And see, when we look at the passage going into chapter 2, we have to understand that this commitment is important. The commitment that he makes, he's willing to pray for four months. Nehemiah 1.1 and Nehemiah 2.1, there's a period of four months. So when Nehemiah is writing and he's speaking, he's saying to the audience, to those who are reading it, he's saying, I've spent four months now with the Lord, and now I'm about to do what I have to do. He was willing to give up his physical pleasure, pray and fast, cry out to God, lean on him, lean on his faithfulness, lean on his foresight to say, okay, God, I'm about to enter in and possibly die because I'm about to ask the king if I can go and rebuild Jerusalem and leave him. See, when I write this thing that a confident vision to rebuild begins with a burdened heart for commitment, he was committed to do whatever it took to get this Jerusalem rebuilt again. And see, often when we're thinking about vision, we talk about dreams. But I want to tell you that there are three things here that we have to know the difference in when we're seeing vision. One, we have to know the difference between a dreamer and a visionary. A dreamer and a visionary. When you're looking at verse 2 of chapter 2, Nehemiah, it says, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. See, he was depressed. He was burdened. 
He was struggling. He didn't know how to present it to the king. The king saw it on his face. And he didn't know what to do. He knew it wasn't a dream. He knew that God called him to a vision. If it were just a dream, he would stay as a cupbearer. If it was just a dream, he wouldn't even think about going out there. If it was just a dream, he'd be one of those people that said, oh, that's nice. I hope someone fixes that up. I hope there's a bunch of people in a bunch of churches that go over there and fix up the wall. I mean, I just hope something like that happens. No. I hope some people get together and hope that it works. He wasn't a dreamer. See, I love what Andy Stanley says in his book, Visionary. And he says, it is interesting that Nehemiah never prayed for God to rebuild the wall. What he prays for is an opportunity to go rebuild it himself. That is the difference between a dreamer and a visionary. Dreamers dream about things being different. Visionaries envision themselves making a difference. I love that. I just love that. Because here's what it is. We don't need spectators or commentaries in the church. We don't need people making comments all the time. We don't need people just sitting back and hoping they can be ministered to all the time. What we need in the church are participators and alongsiders coming alongside of the leaders in the church and saying, what can I do to serve the Lord and carrying out the vision that God has placed on the church through the leaders to reach a world that's lost? That's what we need. In the local church, we need to come together because you and I, we don't get involved because we agree with what's going on. We get involved because God calls us to something. If you're just agreeing, then you're going to be a spectator. If you're just agreeing, you're going to be a commentator. We don't need that. We need participators. We need people to get involved. We need people to come alongside. And it's our job, and we fail. (coughs) It's our job, and we often fail. When we don't point out specifically what you can get involved with. When we fail to cast the proper vision. My hope is that today and in the coming weeks, we can cast God's vision out to where we get excited and get involved. That's what we want to do. And so we hope that you'll see that, that Grace Church wants to get involved in reaching more people for the kingdom of God. Here, here's another thing, too. We got to know the difference between the what, the how, and the when. Now, watch with me in these verses here in verse 3. First, I'm going to share with you the why. Okay, Nehemiah shares the why in verse 3 and 4. It says, I replied... To the king, O king, live forever. Why would I not appear dejected when the city with the graves of my ancestors lies desolate and its gates destroyed by fire? The king responded, What is it you are seeking? Then I quickly prayed to the God of heaven. See, it's the why. He goes, Why not? Why shouldn't I be depressed and burdened right now? Why shouldn't I be dismayed? My people are dying. The walls are not up. My city is a mess. And I'm sitting here taking care of you. Wow, that's bold. And he's just saying it, but he's saying it very respectfully. And he's saying it with a a manner that says, oh, king, live forever. But he's requesting, I need to go. That's a bold question. So it's the why. Why should he go? Then it's the what. Because as you look at verse 5, and you see, he says, and it says to the king, if the king is so inclined, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, dispatch me to Judah, to the city with the graves of my ancestors, so I can rebuild it. See, there's a difference. We all know the why, but the what now comes in more specifically. Send me to rebuild it. Why is I'm hurting? I see my people down, I'm hurting, I'm depressed, I'm down, I'm burdened. Now the what is, I got to go and rebuild it. I'm not asking anyone else to do it, I'll go. Lord, send me. 
And so he's got the what. It's God's vision. He has to go. He knows God's leading him. But then he goes to the how and the why, or how and the when, and the how and the when is even different. Because even in verse 6, he goes, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Scholars to this day have no idea what time Nehemiah gave the king. But God's hand was upon Nehemiah that the king was willing to let him go. That is a miracle in and of itself. Now the how is he had to go to the king and start the conversation of him getting out of there. And the when is right there at that time. Now how it's going to play out, he doesn't know. When it's going to happen exactly, at what time, he doesn't know. He just knows that the how and when is he had to ask the king and when, get out and go. 500 miles away. So God was at work, and his vision was set forth, and he was willing to follow. And that's what happened. So what did it start with? It started with prayer. It started with prayer. That's the key. Lastly, knowing the difference between God's thumbprint and our footprint. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, see, God's thumbprint, see, it's always on it. What often pastors do is pastors get a vision from God, share it with the elders, they all in agreement, and then they go, okay, this is what we're going to do. And they go, thanks, Lord, thanks for the vision. Now I got this now. I can maintain this. I can handle this. I got this, Lord. I got all the goods. I got all the abilities, everything. Okay, Lord, you gave me everything, now I can do it. That's where they fail. That's what we as pastors fail when we think. We carry the burden of the vision. We carry it. When people are, are discouraged and dismayed, we carry it. And we just walk around with this heaviness. And we carry it around like a big old knapsack. And we're just bent over and we're struggling. And God's saying, no, that's not for you to do it. My thumbprint is on it. I didn't let go. My thumbprint is still on it. I'm holding on to this. This is my church. This is my gospel. This is my people. This is mine. This is not yours. You're to carry it out, but it's my vision through you. And as I said earlier, it's not our vision. It's not what we come up with we believe God has called us to do. God's thumbprint is on it, and he's always carrying us throughout it. But the difference between the thumbprint and the footprint is that we have a thumbprint that's with Jesus. We have Jesus' thumbprint. So when God sees us, we see that we have his thumbprint. And the difference is we have to carry it out. He gives us the vision. We cast it, but we have to carry it out. And we're the footprints running around trying to carry it out. How do we carry it out? By getting involved with other people. But sharing the gospel, we know the why, the what, the how, the when. For goodness sake, we know. We see it in the scriptures. We're not here to convince the convinced. You guys know, if you're believers, you know what we're supposed to be doing. You know that as the church, we're supposed to reach those who are far away from God. We know that we have to be sanctified, and, and we have to be discipled. But you need evangelism to be discipled, and if you're discipled, well, you're going to evangelize. But we know. Now it's just the how and the when. But are we willing? Are we burdened? What's burdening us? You know, Rick Warren said that. He goes, pastors often fail because they think they have to maintain it. They fail in even casting it. But you and I, we're, we're the footprints. We've got to grab that vision. God's thumbprint's all over it. we just got to carry it out. And the vision is to connect and network and minister and love. Because you know what? The enemy wants to stop us. He wants to get us to think that we're inadequate, which we are. But God is adequate. And so when we're unworthy, he calls us worthy. When we feel as though we're not good enough, God's saying, 
of course you're good enough. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm going to use you. I've given you grace and abilities to do something. Now do it. God wants to call us to that. That's the key to moving forward. You know that that's our burden. 160,000 people die daily all around the world. People are going into eternity separated from God forever. What are we going to do about it? What is Grace's, what's Grace Church vision? It's real simple. We envision reaching the world from Waldorf by making a local impact that touches the world. We believe that it's from Waldorf, here, Waldorf, and reaching our local area. How are we doing? We had a test or evaluation. We need improvement. But you know what, though? I think we have a lot of good willing hearts here who can carry this vision out. And we can do it by surrendering to God and having a burden. But I ask the question, what burdens you? What burdens you? Because what burdens you and I will carry this vision out? I have some stats here that I hope will encourage you in some way to see the importance of why we're doing what we're doing. Did a little analysis here, a cultural analysis of the area, and we have, I'm putting both in race, age, and economy, but in three slides here I'm going to share with you. I did both Waldorf and Charles County. The race makeup of Waldorf is African-American or 60%, white 25%, Hispanic origin about 7 Asian 3.5%, others, and they, they simply stated others, are 6.5%. But Charles County, African-Americans are 49%, white are 39%, Hispanic origin is around 6 same, close to, Asian about the same, and others it increases. So that's the race, the makeup, the cultural analysis of our area. So that tells us who are we ministering to, who should we be ministering to, how are we going to reach a people in Waldorf, and how what we do and how we do is going to make a difference for the kingdom of God. So what we do, does it affect? Because their view of us, if we're an old white church and there are African Americans looking to see something that's coming close to them, then they're going to say, I'm not going there. But if they hear something that's word going around that this church is trying to become more multicultural, more diverse, then they're going to be interested to at least give it a try. And we who are different cultured people need to embrace whatever the case is. Because it's not about us. It's about reaching a people. Age, look at age, under five. We don't just say these things. These are what the stats are saying. It's not just church growth movement. I'm taking it right from a cultural analysis. Under five, six and a half percent in Waldorf. Six in Charles County. Under 18, 26 percent in Waldorf. 24 in Charles County. Over 65, nine percent in Waldorf. 12 and a half in Charles County. Now, here's the overwhelming number that we have to focus on. 18 to 64, 58%. 57 and a half. Similar in Charles County. Female, 53 in Waldorf, 52. What does that mean? That means that our female population is growing. But the church, if you look at the church across the nation, more females are attending than men. About three to one. Two-thirds to one-third at best. And then we have economy and education, 25 years of age and older, high school or higher, 
or at least graduate. In the county, 93. Bachelors are higher. It gets down a little smaller there. It's a third of it, 30%, similar to the county. Family median income, $91,950, 95 for the county. So we, we obviously, all of you know, this is a very well-to-do area. But poverty is a little bit low, lower than what you would do for, um, for a rate on the U.S. scale. The U.S. scale is around 14 to 16%. Poverty is down a little bit. There's still poverty, obviously, but it's not as prevalent as the average for the United States. And so this is our cultural analysis of just a small little three-slide stats of we can do some more, but just for the sake of time. But let me just give you, if you were at the business meeting, you saw this already. For sake of argument, i got to share this with you. How do we minister? How do we minister to a cultural analysis, to an area that's so needed? One is that you'll see that each circle represents the emphasis and the font as well. So when you're looking at different church focus, you're going to see the different perspective and how a church has its vision, its mission, and its philosophy. I've been in seeker-driven churches. I've been a part of a staff where it's a big church of 16,000-plus people on 12 or 13 campuses. Seeker-driven church focus has upward, always focusing on upward. You have an inward process too, but the inward component is small. They're not focused on the inward. In fact, they say if you want to grow deeper in the scriptures and deeper in relationship, more Bible studies, they tell you up front, this is not your church because they want to reach more people who are far away from God. Their emphasis is outward, community, events, inviting Sunday. Seeker-sensitive church focus. Again, you have the upward, inward, and the outward. Notice that the inward is bigger. Bible study, life group, service, discipleship. It's big emphasis. Smaller emphasis, community events, inviting Sunday. Just once in a while, we'll do an event. But the upward, both focus are always focusing upward. But they see it a little bit differently. Now we have missional church. I shared this with you before. You have the upward, inward, and the outward. Three circles that are even in shape, and the fonts are the same. Because they want to focus. This type of church, which I hope we can be, is an upward, intimacy-driven, focusing on God, prayer, word of God, focusing on drawing close to him, inward, discipleship-driven, outward-driven is the outward-reach-driven, which we even did with Reach Week. Now, here's what that means. That means you can't have evangelism without discipleship, and you can't have discipleship without evangelism. you got to have both with great emphasis, meaning if you're being discipled well, you're going to evangelize, and you can't disciple anyone unless someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So in order to be able to, to fulfill the purpose of the church to make disciples, we have to have a strong outreach ministry. It's important. We have to balance the scales. And that's why missional church, we want to focus on some of these components. Upward, word of God, prayer, spiritual disciplines. Inward, a simulation, trying to find out who's coming in. Who's going through a process? How can we better serve them and minister to them? How can we help them to grow, draw closer to God? How can we help them to reach their, their peers? How can we help them to reach their neighbors? How can we help them to reach their coworkers? Life groups. Big emphasis coming up on life groups for our church. Big emphasis. Men's and women's ministries. Children's ministries. Youth ministries. All of that. Student ministries. And then outreach. Reach week. Men's and women's events. Sunday invite. We're working toward that. And then we have Grace Church 2020 Vision. What are we working on this year? We're going to be talking about that in the coming weeks. Life groups, 
focusing on life groups, connection, networking, ministering, loving on and shepherding, caring for each other. You've done that for some years. We're going to continue and build that up. Student children's ministries. We're growing. We're we're in, increasing. I mean, last week, I was talking to Heather this morning, our children's director. I just thought with these Sundays being a little bit off with vacation and all and, and holiday season, she said we had 27 kids back there. She says, and more than half of the normal kids were gone. She said, Bruno, we would have had 40 kids back there plus. We've been averaging about 30. I'm just like, wow, more people are visiting our church even through the holiday season. It's exciting to hear, but we need to build. You're looking at your temporary student pastor until we find someone. So you know what? Uh, pray for me. Um, Sunday experience, same thing. Sunday experience, very important. Why? Because I got to tell you something. I'm going to liken it to this. If my wife invites a family to my house and they like liver and onions, I can't stand liver and onions. If I say, you know what, honey? Sorry, nobody's making liver and onions in my house. I hate liver and onions. I ain't going to let that smell even come or permeate in my house. I'd be a fool to say that. I would say, oh my gosh, I got to eat liver and onions? I got to look up Google and say 10 ways to eat liver and onions without throwing up or getting sick. I mean, you know, it's like I got to figure out a way to do it. And I could smile and say I'm excited about it. And it's like, wow, okay, liver and onions, woo. Now, see, that would be great. I'd have to do it. Why? Because when people come to my house, it's not about me. I want them to have a great experience. I want to serve them. I want the house to be clean. I want the bathrooms to be clean. I want everybody to walk in the foyer and just feel comfortable. Now, it just happens to be that I'm Italian that all oh, y'all are going to like Italian food. So when you come to my house, we're going to have Italian food anyway. So the idea is that, but I'm going to welcome you in. It's experience. Same thing here. We want this place to be a place where a visitor comes and they're feeling loved, accepted. Children's ministry, student ministry, everything welcomed and loved and connected. And that's where life groups come in. But it starts with you and I saying hello. So this is what we're doing this year. Rebuilding grace from the inside while reaching the world outside. Rebuilding it. Rebuilding and reaching. See, the word wild is key because we're not stopping the outside because we're rebuilding inside. We're still going to be working on the outside, but we've got to rebuild the inside. Now, what do you mean, Bruno, what do you mean by that? I'm not talking about method. I'm not talking about music and how we do things. I'm talking about loving the gospel again. That's rebuilding. I want us to love the gospel again. Because when we love the gospel, then it doesn't matter what we do. Because we love God and people. God and people. So we got to love the gospel. So we need to rebuild and love the gospel. Oh, I know what the gospel means. No, 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 no. I'm saying we got to love the gospel. <laughs> that means we got to truly love, and that means it's not about me. It's about someone else. Because a vision, a confident vision is carried out when we are focused on others. I want to encourage you. What burdens you? What truly, as the team is coming up, what burdens you? What burdens you to reach a neighbor? What burdens you to reach a, uh, a co-worker? What burdens you to say hello to someone you haven't even talked to ever before in this church? What burdens you? I want to encourage you, take that to God in prayer this week. Take that to God. 21 days of prayer and fasting is not a simple task. Some of you have done it before. I haven't gone straight 21, but close. And it is a very serious focus time. And it's a time to focus on God and about what can be different for someone else. 
So I want to encourage you, as your heads are just bowed and your eyes are closed, what's that one thing that's burdening you right now? I just want you to mention it in your heart right now. Just mention, even if you have to audibly mention it to yourself. You know, you don't have to say it out loud, but just to yourself. Just say that one thing that's burdening you. And then when you get that one thing, imagining, just laying it before the feet of Jesus. Just imagining it. Just saying, here, God, here it is. And I would encourage you to even write that down. Write that burden down, whatever that is, a person, um, something in your life, or the church, and pray for that in the next 21 days or so. Father, thank you for encouraging us about prayer. Thank you for the life of Nehemiah. Thank you for the fact that you gave him a burden, a vision. Pray that, Lord, we would have a vision for this church, that you have shown us that we would carry it out, that we would be burdened to do so. Be willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.